Let us pray. <laughs> Father, we thank you for the time we get to spend together. Thank you for the uh, the care that everyone has shown uh, me and my family in uh, getting ready for this. And thank you for your, your kindness to us. Uh, we know you have a plan and purpose in all that transpires. We thank you for the hard times and the and the easy times. Thank you for the challenges of uh, of uh, health problems and uh, and also for the support and sustainment you give us to accomplish all that you expect. Father, everything we do is to glorify you and the power of your spirit uh, in uh, submission to, to you, to your son. We want to be pleasing to you this hour as we think through how we have come to, to do theology as we do. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Greetings to you from Preston, Connecticut. It's wonderful to be here and uh, Houston again with you after uh, such a long absence. And then we had another short absence. I wasn't able to be here for most of the conference, but uh, my strategy on, on Wednesday evening became clear. If I'm going to speak Friday, then I'm going to sleep for Thursday <laughs> and most of Friday. And uh, so the rest has helped, and my voice is almost halfway present. So that's that's good. I'm going to be... Uh, be uh, <clears throat> inform a little bit and drink coffee as I teach because otherwise I won't have a voice. I do need to set the record straight about what my mother did or did not know about my uh, pastoral gift. Um, we had conversations about it from as early as eight years old about what a pastor is and what he does and why would I want to be one. And it was... Uh, more and more evident to me that I should do that or that I wanted to do this by the time I was 12 years old and really all along as a kid with a desire to study the word as my life's vocation. Notice I didn't say teach it. I said to to study it as my life's vocation. Um, I felt that it was a rather presumptuous uh, goal. Who am I to say I could be the pastor? Why should people listen to me? That was my concern. And... um, but I, I did uh, believe for sure by the time I was 16 years old that I was a pastor. And um, my pastor even suggested, you know, maybe West Point isn't the best option because they don't have educational uh, opportunities in that direction. You're going to have to study engineering. And I still said, you know, I want to study engineering. And I did. And here I am not using any electrical engineering whatsoever. So we're here uh, looking at John Nelson Darby and uh, theological method. I have Several things I'd like to accomplish. When I printed my copy of my paper out, I did it in 16 font so that I could read it without glasses. <laughs> and, um, and so I won't be able to tell you what page I'm on. Uh, but I, I will read some and I will express some of it with you. And um, let me give you my introduction before I give you the outline of what we'll do today. The father of modern dispensationalism came on the scene of history at a salutary moment, and he read his Bible with rare devotional abandon just prior to and throughout a lifetime of writing. His vast and challenging written record presents volumes of meticulous theological correspondence, popular tract and pamphlet writing, and a body of argumentative discourse that would leave little doubt as to his opinion on theological matters from Greek grammatical structures in the New Testament to the application of biblical principles in the 19th century British political life. From this record, one can distill a rigorous and thoroughly detailed system of theology, though the desirable task of cataloging and prioritizing that systematic theology was sadly one accomplishment Darby never undertook. He would probably remark that the Bible has its own system, and therefore the closest thing we have to his systematic theology is his magnum opus, the synopsis of the books of the Bible. This 
magnum opus originally published in French took him the better part of 20 years to complete, and in five volumes it presents a system that must be derived inductively. It still doesn't give you his system, even though it does. You have to go digging for it. Darby's priority of the Bible, illuminated to the believer by the Holy Spirit over human reasoning, was his constant appeal. At times, if you read this paper, you're going to find that I've been reading Darby. And sometimes when I read somebody, I start to write like them. And that is a death sentence if you're going to be understood to write like Darby. Reading the Bible, Darby will demonstrate some key features of his approach, which began always with a high view of the inspiration. This perspective had, as its consequence, a desire to interpret interpret biblical writings within their author's intended and construed meaning and a respect for the sequential flow of revelation. It also led to the insistence that the Old Testament scriptures be read on their own terms. And this priority supported the signal insight that Israel and the church are distinct entities with distinct responsibilities in their respective and distinct eras or dispensations. Darby's priority doctrine and interpretive motif, the doctrine of the church, would ultimately direct him to make the great distinction between uh, between Israel from the church, which would be the topical sine qua non of dispensationalism after Darby. In other words, what Ryrie said in 1965, dispensationalism today derives directly from Darby's uh, core doctrinal commitment, the distinctiveness of the church. From the beginning of his ministry to his death, Darby's focus was the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, getting at what the church is would enable him to synthesize the biblical material into the dispensational system found in his synopsis and throughout his post-1833 writings. Real quick today, what I'd like to accomplish um, is uh, as a look at uh, how we read Darby. How do you get at him? Because I want you to be equipped to read him if you'd like. It's, he's a wonderful thing. Darby is directly in the line if we're going to be Chafer Seminary, we need to understand that Chafer came from Schofield, and Schofield was impacted absolutely by the uh, by James Brooks of of, uh, of uh, St. Louis, uh, the father of American dispensationalism, who in turn was absolutely impacted by John Nelson Darby, and it's it, it, there's almost a baton being passed down the line that goes again Chafer back to Schofield, back to Brooks, back to Darby, the Irishman who came over as a missionary here. In, in Germany and th- throughout Europe um, and many other places, but he came to America several times. In fact, he stayed with Brooks and uh, ministered with Brooks in St. Louis. So uh, when we when we talk about Darby, I want you to have access to him. We'll talk a little bit about his materials, uh, his life history very shortly. There's a lot of stuff that's been done recently on Darby's life, and it's very accessible, and I'll show you where. And then I want to talk to you really about theological method. What is it? Real quick, just by show of hands, could you show me, have you ever heard of theological method or talked about it as a discipline, the discipline of theological method? Has anybody ever read a book or a paper on this? Do you have a name offhand that you'd say, this is the guy I go to on talking about theological method? Like, I know who to read systematic theologies, but who talks about method, how you, how you construct a systematic theology? I think, what's that? Howard Hendricks? Okay. Hendricks' methodology is Bible study methods. It's inductive Bible study, which is related. But theology method is built, is built on it. I, I contend that the best person who hasn't written a book on it, but he does teach on it, on this, and um, I, I have to be careful in saying this, uh, but, but to me, the person who is um, expressing this within a dispensational framework 
um, in an academic level is named Mike Stallard. He spoke here last year, I believe, at this conference on Arno Gabeline. And I'm studying with him at Baptist Bible Seminary, and that's why I'm studying at Baptist Bible Seminary, because we're studying true dispensationalism and where it came from and why it is still abiding. We have to be dispensationalists if we're going to be biblically uh, faithful. And so um, a lot of what I'm going to say about method will come from Stallard's discussion and notes. And uh, it's always my intention when I share with you to give you the best of what I've received, uh, however I'm able. So that's partly why we're going to talk about method today. We'll talk about sources for Darby, his life, and method. Sources for studying Darby, the, the first place to go is called the Synopsis of the Books of the Bible. By the way, Darby's stuff is all available as open source. It's old. Darby was born in 1800. And he died in 1882, and so his writings in the middle of that are, are all open source. You can get them as PDF documents. But the synopsis of the books of the Bible, <clears throat> five-volume set, uh, written originally in French. For, for the uh, French community of believers said, could you please give us this work? And he said, oh, well, okay, and then spent 20 years producing his synthetic view of the Bible. It's the underpinning for what we would probably consider the Bible exposition movement or Bible exposition coursework in our dispensational seminaries. See, it's his view of how the Bible works. Now, it's not a commentary on the Bible, and you can't use it as one, and I've tried. It's his explanation of how the Bible fits together. Let me explain. To Darby, the center of the Bible is the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's the most important thing in all of human history. And so, out of five volumes, two of them are about the Old Testament. Three of them are about the New Testament. And that's inverted proportionally if you're talking about how much Bible we have Old Testament versus how much New Testament. But that's the point. This is a theological work of synthesis of how the thing fits together. And so, it's a very uh, helpful work, but it's, it's Darby. And the thing about Darby is he's hard to read. Let's see if I can find. Yeah, there we go. Recently studying through Darby, and I wanted to share the wealth of suffering, um, as I have with my brothers over here on the front row on Wednesday. Hope you guys are taking your vitamin C. <laughs> but uh, um, uh, I, I, I was I just picked off my Darby shelf. I grabbed a, a volume at random and opened to a random passage, and then I read it into my phone. You know how you put the speaker thing, and I, I dictated to my phone a paragraph, and then I sent it as a text to Ryan Baker, uh, my uh, pastoral associate, and this is what it was, and I just want you to understand what, what I'm going through as I study Darby, what Robbie was talking about. After all, to say that a direction given to a superior authority to know how one ought to conduct oneself in the sphere of his action confers on everyone to arrogate to himself that authority, even as a matter of obedience, would be too absurd a pretext to put forward. Semicolon. <laughs> and they feel it in spite of themselves if it were not a question of justifying when the thing is done, what is required by the principle we are not discussing, viz., that the absence of this, quote, not otherwise, leaves everything free, a principle which wipes away all that is said in the work because we may do quite otherwise without there being an infraction of the rule that is found in it and of the mode of action which is followed in it. From Darby's Volume 4 Collected Writings, in a, in a paper called, listen to the name of this paper, Examination of a Few Passages of Scripture. Ha, ha, ha.
sometimes it's quixotic. I feel like I'm tilting windmills here, windmills here trying to figure this guy out. But it's worth it. William Kelly, a very helpful dispensationalist in his own right, and uh, Darby's sort of Melanchthon, Darby's follow-on guy, uh, collected all his writings together and, and uh, published them and edited them and has collated them, and a very helpful writer himself. He's got a, a two-word uh, mantra that he would tell everyone. Um, in terms of, uh, of understanding what we're trying to say, he would say, read Darby. And I'm going to show you today we need to do that, but I've also shown you hopefully that it's a hard thing to do. Synopsis doesn't read like, like that, that writing does. Uh, he did, I mean, we're reading an English translation from his French. <laughs> um, and it's been apparently smoothed or else he smoothed it. You know, sometimes you write uh, an email, sometimes you write a letter. And uh, you might be a little bit more polished one or the other. Um, sometimes you write a term paper, and sometimes you read part of it to the people and try to spare them uh, too much suffering. All right. <clears throat> the next thing to look at is his collected writings in 34 volumes. And again, you can get that online as PDF documents. Um, if you're uh, sharp with your computer skills and you've got Logos, you can take those PDF documents and transpose them into Word documents and then turn those into a collection of personal books that you can then search, um, but not as well as if they were actual Logos books. He's got his collected letters in three volumes. Uh, Dr. Stallard, and, and I agree with him, will say the collected letters are the easiest thing to access Darby's life and his thought because he's thinking of an audience and he's not quite so stream of consciousness writing. He's, he's thinking of an audience. By the way, the man's a lawyer. He was, he was legally trained. Did I just read you a legal document a second ago? It reminds me of that, that uh, comedian, Jim Gaffigan. I don't know if you heard of him. He's pretty funny. He's pretty clean, usually. Um, he talks about legal documents when he has to, to sign a, a mortgage statement and says, um, you know, he's reading along, he says, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, aforementioned parties, previously referred to as the proprietor, will henceforth be known as, and he says, he just, he, what did they coat this thing in chloroform. I'm passing out just reading. What do I have to pay someone to read this stuff? And the lawyer says, that'll be $400 an hour. <laughs> it's sold. That's worth it. And uh, sometimes you feel like you're reading legal writing when you read Darby that way, but not so much in the letters, which um, three volumes of his letters and dated and in sequence. There are very few people in world history, scholars in world history, that you've got this access of their letters, three volumes of letters to go along with the timeline of their line of their lives with their other writings. Seven volumes of notes and comments. Those aren't quite as helpful probably as the other writings. Darby's notes to himself in, in his own Darby language. The problem is you're dealing with a super genius. As I'll say in my paper, and I won't read to you, he wrote uh, the whole, he translated the whole Bible uh, from Greek and Hebrew because he's a Greek scholar. He also translated the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into several European languages, which he developed a, a skill for to do that, to do the Bible translation. And he learned, I mean, he, to, to speak German and teach theology in German as a non-German speaker. This is a hard thing to do, and he just kind of picked it up. He's a really, really smart person. And see, today it's very popular in evangelical dumb to, to make fun of dispensationalists and say, ah, oh, you know, that Darby guy. Be careful laughing at Darby. Darby's smarter than most people. 
he's a, he's a genius. And the reason he's hard to read is because he reads like one of these geniuses that struggles with getting his thought across. So you got to go in and, and work on it. I'm going to show you how we work on that here in a little bit. Notes and jottings, another uh, collection that's out there. And you can check out BibleTruthPublishers.com. That's the, that's the website that's easiest to access all these in PDF. And uh, these guys, I think it's a Plymouth Brethren organization, and uh, it's got it all in PDF. And I pulled all those PDFs and turned them into a Logos book. But what I'd ask you all to do, you uh, at home and you here, uh, please, please consider helping a poor seminary student not become a cemetery student. If you go on to Logos.com community, community pricing, you don't have to buy anything. But here's what the site looks like. This is the 47-volume Darby's Collected Works. That's all 34 plus the notes and jottings and other things. In Logos format, it's so much better to have it in Logos than personal books. I can check it by word, by Greek word, by verse. You know, um, I can, I, and it's so much easier to search. Believe me, I need to be able to do this. They right now have it as a community price. By the way, if you look, you can't really see, but um, on that it says you bid on this in 2013, and it's been gathering interest or not ever since. So it's just sitting there in Logos hell, uh, Logos purgatory. Please, <laughs> please spring this one from purgatory and tell them yes, I want to uh, put it on the lowest one. And then when they say, would you like to buy it? Say no, I don't want to. If you don't want to buy it, but um, but get the thing published. Get the thing published. Uh, that's what we need to do. Okay, so um. I'm not selling you books and I'm not asking you for $90. I'm just saying, please ask Logos to publish this because it can't just be me refreshing that I really do want you to buy this. They, they do it because of the interest that's shown. And um, and I don't know, I'm not wishing ill on the poor typists that have to go in there and type all that in. That's their job and they, they're glad to have a job. So let's put them to work. <laughs> Secondary, secondary sources that are real helpful that, that if you want to go after this. The first one, and these are in chronological sequence. W.G. Turner wrote John Nelson Darby in 1944, a biography of Darby. I think Turner's a, a I think he's a, a brethren. And so it's a, it's a sympathetic approach to Darby. And so this is the overview of his life. It's probably the best biography still. Again, you can get it on Bible Tree Publishers as a PDF document. Turner's uh, uh, book. Then you've got some scholarly writings. Larry Crutchfield, a helpful dispensational writer and scholar today. He'll speak at pre-trib from time to time. He's got some papers on the pre-trib site. He wrote his dissertation for Drew University in 1985 on the, the, the issue of what does Darby think about the, the, the ages and dispensations in his writings. <clears throat> Larry Dixon, I don't know much about him, but uh, university, uh, Drew University also in, in 85. Um, the pneumatology, so focusing on the study of the Spirit of God in Darby. What does Darby do with that doctrine? Another helpful look at Darby's theology uh, from a scholarly perspective. Um, between uh, Dixon and Crutchfield, you have a helpful overview of his background with some details that are hard to find elsewhere. Floyd Elmore, a progressive dispensationalist, forget where he's teaching now, um, but uh, Dr. Stallard does know him wrote a critical examination of the doctrine of the two peoples of God in John Darby, and that's the heavenly and earthly peoples, one of the key theological things that we've we've been accused of as dispensationalists, uh, and he did this at DTS in 91. Shinon Deng, have no idea, can't find this guy anywhere. Um, maybe he's not in the United States now um, in his work, but if you find him, 
this graduate of PhD from the University of Minnesota, please uh, hit me with a text or an email. I'd like to, I'd like to, to tra- track him down. Ideas of the Church in the Age of Reform, and he goes into the ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, on two opposing uh, people. You can read both their books, Darby and one that, um, that he went after, John Henry Newman. Uh, and finally, the most recent book that's probably most helpful about Darby is Paul Wilkinson, For Zion's Sake. Paul Wilkinson speaks at pre-trib usually every year. And uh, this was, I think, his Ph.D. dissertation, The Life of Darby, and his impact on Christian Zionism, the movement of Israel and the land. <clears throat> so uh, just some thoughts about where you can read about him. And I especially would recommend grabbing Wilkinson's book and, uh, and Turner's book uh, if you want uh, a a popular level. Ernest Sandine in his book about fundamentalism, that hateful uh, work on fundamentalism, um, does a whole lot. It's 40 pages on the life of Darby. And I think he's right. American fundamentalism in the 20th century is a product of Darby's uh, work. It's a product of Darby. Not everybody went brethren, but everybody read their Bible as though it was real and true. And so uh, Sandine's worth reading, but he's not sympathetic. Um, so let's talk about Darby's background. See, we're just cruising right through. We're going to get done with this in and, and no time at all. And in terms of family, Darby was born to Gentry in 1800. It's real easy to know what's going on in history when you get what age he is, because if he's 26, then you're probably in 1826. He was born in 1800. Uh, born in London to a wealthy family. Uh, his father had a title to Leap Castle in Ireland. Um, and uh, and that's important because in his biography he he's disowned when he becomes a pastor he becomes a clergyman and he doesn't uh, mind he's willing to take that sacrifice because he believes that he's called to serve the Lord vocationally and and he takes the hit of of disowning from his father his mother uh, was half American um, and uh, her father had a sugar plantation um, in America. And so you have uh, wealth and success on both sides of the family. And uh, he was christened um, in 1801. Um, and uh, present was the famous Lord Nelson, um, the naval hero, uh, who was his godfather. These people travel in really um, uh, a really high social circle, um, which is interesting because when you read what Darby was like as a pastor in his early 20s, a curate, a, uh, a a priest for on a horse riding around talking to the Irish in the in the back backwoods of County Wicklow. You, you read that he was um, he he looked like a saint to them. He was shabbily dressed. It looked like he hadn't shaved in several days. Not because he was trying to avoid the razor, but because he hadn't stopped working to shave. And he was emaciated and. Uh, and didn't care about his personal appearance. He cared about the salvation of the the poor Irish, and they considered him to be the real deal. He was a self-denying Christian. And um, Darby, you can see he's an interesting character. When he got involved with something, he really went all the way. Let's talk about his education a little bit. This is one of the real interesting contradictions in the life of Darby. I recently I did a paper on Darby's local church ecclesiology. He doesn't like seminary. He doesn't like pastors. He doesn't want to see ordination. If you, I mean, if you've watched the Plymouth Brethren, if you know them, they they've adopted a lot of his you know, dogmatic, absolute assumptions about how the local church is to be conducted. And the strange thing is, when you say no seminary, that means that your your guys that are going to be elders, which he did approve of, and designating elders. But he didn't like he didn't like the Anglican ordination process, but he believed in ordaining elders. 
if they don't go to seminary, how are they going to learn their Greek? How are they going to learn their Hebrew? But Darby's a Greek master. He's a Greek scholar from his training in college. So um, it's kind of a contradiction that you wouldn't say go get trained as much as Darby is. On the other, on the other hand, um, uh, uh, let's read our Bibles closely and pay attention as we should. So we're not always going to agree with everything he says. There are contradictions in everyone's life, and so you have to watch him uh, at times on, especially local church ecclesiology. Um, in 1815, he went, that's 15 years old, uh, he went to Trinity College in Dublin, and uh, this, is a, this is a premillennial outfit. This is a place, Anglican, in the Anglican system, they're adopting premillennialism. They're historicists. They don't believe in a pre-trib rapture. They believe in uh, probably some form of nascent covenantism, but they're premillennial. They're differing with the um, the theology they received from the Re- Reformation and from Augustine. Everybody since Augustine said no millennium and uh, Revelation 20 is uh, recapitulation or something, but they're rereading in this phase, and that's the fr- that's the fervor Darby was educated in. He was already a premillennialist from his college days. It wasn't far to become a pre-tribulationist, actually. In 1819, he was a classical gold medalist um, and became, um, and that's 19 years old, graduated college with the highest degree, highest marks in classics. Now, in Trinity College, you could get, um, you could be a gold medalist in the sciences or in the um, in the arts and it was called the classics, and and uh, he had to choose which one to do because he was equally proficient in both, and uh, he eventually uh, chose classics, and um, was a Greek scholar in my opinion at age 19 from his education from the depth of his education there, and um, became a lawyer, uh, a law student at 19, and making us fall feel really good for all that video game playing that's being done by 19-year-olds today in America. 1822, that's right, he was a, a, an official barrister, an official lawyer uh, who passed all his exams, and they would said, you are able to write papers that they're going to read 200 years later and really struggle with. So um, called to the Irish Bar at 22 years old, and this is the end in his life of a really significant phase. We've all dealt with the, the question, I'm looking at a room full of people who've dealt with the issue, why do I believe what I believe? Many of you were brought along by your parents, I was, brought along by your parents about who the Lord is and what you're going to do about that with your life. And what's your life really about? We've all come to that. And if you haven't come to that uh, problem, that question, hey, it's probably coming. God's going to do something with you. We did this with Darby from the ages of 15 to 22. It was a seven-year period of he called spiritual darkness and soul-searching and trouble. And it, it all through that educational phase. And he, he was really wrestling with what he was going to do. And his family, they're lawyers, they're, they're successful businessmen, uh, a close relative is the uh, is the uh, um, the uh, like the attorney general for the for for Ireland. You have um, a, an obvious move from your education into the law pr- practice, and he renounced it at the close of this. He had peace when he realized that his life was God's, and I don't consider this to be Darby's conversion. I consider this to be Darby's. Darby's willingness to do what God had for him to do. It's not a Keswick crisis moment. The point is that 
through a dark, soul-searching period of his life, he realized, I must serve the Lord with his life. And that reminds us of another man who was a lawyer who found a commitment to the Lord, however weak, in a lightning storm. A lawyer who said, if you will let me survive this lightning storm, I will become a monk. And if God hadn't sent the lightning... And if Luther hadn't misappropriated the lightning as a call to be a monk, so that he then found the Bible and became a reader of Romans chapter 2 and 3, and then eventually um, the reformer, we would not have this conversation today. I consider Darby to be a reformer. In my paper, I talk about that just a little bit, about the nature of the way reform works and why he was so important uh, to to theology in his day and, and to ours. Um, let me read a little bit of that to you just, just a, a bit. I'm not going to read much of this paper, but I want to read this to you. Perhaps because of the times in which he lived and perhaps because of the particular factors of his individual journey, Darby was a thoroughgoing reformer in the issue of the balance between conservative and liberal. Often the idea is the status quo. The idea of the status quo is considered the conservative view. Now watch this. The conservatives argue for the status quo, and the liberals say, no, there's a new, better way to to move from the status quo down the line. In that discussion, um, there is rarely the idea of improvement against an absolute, even divine standard. We're never asking, was the status quo good enough in the first place? Usually the conservatives say, let's fight to maintain status quo. And I say, enter the reformer. The reformer looks at the status quo and says that it's... Conservatives, fine, but you're not even arguing for the divine standard. We've got to move this way, way back to something prior to the to what the conservatives consider the status quo. And so change means moving along the line of conservative thought beyond the status quo on which even the conservatives are insisting. Darby did not eat, want to undo the legitimate expressions of Christian fellowship in the state churches. He wanted them all to adjust to the biblical pattern of visible assembly as he understood it. And this view made him a radical. He advocated something that had not been experienced in most of Christendom in 2,000 years, if ever. His new idea of the universal church faithful to the text of Scripture and disconnected from the structures of the world with the Holy Spirit as president over the local assemblies of this universal body was partly a reaction to his times of Anglican, to his times of Anglican decay and the German pressure to liberalize. But it was also something more. Darby got to this lifetime emphasis for which he traveled so extensively by reading his Bible. From it, he discerned an internal system of theology that we call dispensationalism today. I consider Darby a reformer. And by the way, uh, in terms of church history, there are five people that you could say are the most prolific um, writers and, and uh, thinkers where you've got their libraries that we can go a- access. And uh, we, we've got to put Luther and Calvin in there. And before them, Augustine. And uh, between the two is um, is the great ratiocinator, Thomas, Thomas Aquinas. Put the Bible next to Thomas, and now we know how to read it at the Council of Trent and reject the Bible in favor of Thomas. But Thomas Aquinas, his writings, and the fifth one's Darby. The fifth, uh, considered the, the most prolific, would be Darby uh, in terms of uh, his theological work and its depth. <clears throat> This is the most famous person you've never read or heard of. Uh, And that's how they think of Darby. Here's this quote from his most uh, important autobiographical letter, the letter to Professor Tholuck in Letters, Volume 3, which isn't dated, but we think it's somewhere uh, in the 50s, you know, in his prime. 
He said, I was a lawyer, but feeling that the Son of God gave himself for me, I owed myself entirely to him, and that the so-called Christian world was characterized by deep ingratitude toward him. I longed for complete devotedness to the work of the Lord. My chief thought was to get round amongst the poor Catholics of Ireland. This is Darby, the Catholic priest, or the Anglican priest, among the Irish. Uh, In this same letter, he'll say that uh, before... Archbishop McGee shut down all evangelistic effort in Ireland by requiring them to swear allegiance to the British crown, which is a political problem the Irish would never do. Darby was having as many as 800 converts a week in his horse riding ministry around County Wicklow. 800 Catholics coming to Protestantism a week. And and, and this is the beginning of Darby's uh, controversies and his life. Getting to know Darby is going to help in the effort of getting to know his theology. And and I think this is the, the first thing you need to know about him. This is his devotional center that motivates everything else he does. Now, was Darby a perfect human? No, but this is, this is the core that he's assuming from that dark period of his life to what he's doing now. And, and he'll tell, in, in the same letter, he'll talk about his sacramentalism. Hey, if we're supposed to fast, then I'm going to be a gold medalist at fasting. If we're supposed to go through the, the Lenten rituals, if, that's, if the stuff the Anglican Church is serving up is what we're supposed to do, because we love the Lord Jesus Christ, then I'm going to do it uh, to the standard that Darby does things. You know, five volumes of the synopsis of the Bible in 20 years because some French people ask him for one. He's going to do it all the way. And so he was a complete devotee and experiencer of that system. And he'll say, if there was anything helpful or mystical in all that stuff that was supposed to get us there in terms of spirituality, I would have found it. And he didn't. To tell you the story of Darby's life from here, which I'm not going to do in this talk, is to tell you about all the controversies that he went through. I outlined them in my paper, some of them. Darby is considered the most important theological influence in the founding of the Plymouth Brethren denomination. I don't tell them it's a denomination because they'll say it's not. But I think it is. (laughs) And uh, and he's he's, he's not the founder. And in my paper I say George Washington isn't the founder of the United States, but he was there from the beginning and very influential in what happened. And Darby even more so. He's the theologian of the beginning of the movement. Now, um, He's also hard to get along with because he's sure of his convictions. And when you don't agree with him, he's going to write you a book to help you understand. <laughs> the biggest uh, theological debate he ever had was with Benjamin Wells Newton, the pastor of the church in Plymouth. Darby doesn't believe in pastors. They believe in an individual pastor. We're, he wrote a paper on that. That's dispensationally the sin against the Holy Spirit. See, Darby's got an interesting local church ecclesiology. Um, but a lot of it's in, in reaction to what he dealt with with his Anglicanism and how he saw the uh, the church, which he called in ruin, the, the Anglican church, shut down the ministry of the gospel. But Darby, uh, with Newton, uh, Newton wrote a book called uh, uh, Notes on the Thoughts on the Apocalypse. And I, in my paper, I think it's, I tell you, it's like 220 pages or something. Darby wrote a 348-page rebuttal. Thoughts on, thoughts on the apocalypse. And it was called, The Irrationality of Infidelity. <laughs> 
wait, wait, no, that, that wasn't the one. That, there was another book that he wrote that. But, but that's what he would do. He, he was a bachelor. He had time. And he would just, he would write and write and write. And, um, and so you've got to read Newton. You've got to read Darby. Um, uh, Darby was a real pastor, though. He was, uh, he was known for controversies. Uh, Paul Wilkinson says we shouldn't call him a controversialist, but he did, is known for controversies. And, um, uh, and some people think he was just kind of spiny and rough, but he wouldn't have had an impact if he was always that way with everyone. I think he pulled out rocks for his sling when he thought he saw a wolf. I think when he saw, thought he saw a sheep, he was gentle and a very uh, kind shepherd. And I want to recount... Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, Turner talks about this. Eyewitnesses will say that when he would go on a conference and speak, and a lot of things were done by conferences, he would um, he would take care with a dear brother who hadn't yet understood what he was trying to say. That was one of the one of the flock. And if they had questions, he would he would try to answer and come back again and, and until they understood. And very gentle and and not impatient. However. He wasn't always that way with the teachers. With the pastor, I want to read one one uh, excerpt from Turner for you to get a flavor for Darby. <laughs> a London surgeon told the writer, that's Turner, a story of a Bible reading, which Darby was giving in the States. A number of ministers were present, paying great attention to him. One of them, Reverend Dr. G.F. Pentecost, no known relation to Dwight Pentecost, but G.F. Pentecost broke in with a question as the meeting proceeded. Darby replied briefly, but his questioner did not quite, not quite grasping the relevance of the reply, asked him to kindly repeat what he'd said. This he did, but Pentecost, remarking that he still could not cl- clearly see the point, asked for a third and more detailed explanation. Arrested by this in the full flow of a most interesting argument, Darby rather spoiled things by very tartly reporting, I am here to supply exposition, not brains. <laughs> not, ladies and gentlemen, not the pastoral approach. I'm saying that's a rock for the sling when he sees a wolf, I contend. Let me summarize the theological system for you as best I can. Darby's reformed. He divided with uh, with Dwight Moody when he came to America, and Darby's a big deal, and Moody's a big deal. We should get this together. We believe in the Bible. We love the Bible. They couldn't get together because Moody would not acquiesce to reformed theology in terms of soteriology. You need to know that in terms of the background. Um, and he doesn't talk in his writings. You can't see. I've got it searchable by PDF. But if we all get on there and get Logos, it'd be easier to search. Um, I've I've checked. He doesn't use the word hermeneutics. He doesn't use the word Calvinism. A very little. He'll talk about Calvin. He doesn't want to to identify biblical theology as he sees it with any human. But he does talk about sovereign grace a lot, and he does talk about total depravity. And it's really central. If you watch dispensationalism, it's central to the system. Man always fails because man fell. Sin is of such a consequence, and we we love this. Sin is of such a consequence that every age ends in human failure. Watch it. Watch the age of Israel end in human failure. Watch the age of the church end in apostasy. Watch the the millennium. Uh Uh-oh. There's a revolution 
according to Revelation chapter 20, at the end of the millennium, because Satan is unbound, and man in his fallenness, in his sinfulness, with Jesus Christ ruling on Mount Zion, is still going to rebel. And so that's that's really important to the system. Dispensationalists today, we take flack because we're pessimists as regarding the prospects of human performance. We're biblicists about this. Man isn't going to solve the problem. The God-man, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, is going to solve the problem, and we're going to marvel when he does. And so that's, that's well, you're cynics, you're, cynics, you're pessimists. No, we're, we're biblical optimists. We expect God to do wonderful things. And we want, we're ready to be a product of whatever he wants us to do. So we're part of his program of calling out those who will rule with Christ in his coming kingdom. So that's, that's really important to understand about his, his system. Um, the, the, the categorical doctrines that he did, differed with the reformers on would be ecclesiology and eschatology, obviously. And these are the distinct actors as he saw the system develop. And a lot of his ideas revolve around these things. God is doing his own thing. He has called forth Israel as a distinct entity and the church is still distinct from Israel. And the way these uh, entities interrelate and work will explain a lot of his theology. On method, I'd like to introduce systematic theology as a task to you in terms of method. Because this is, the, the, for a lot of you, this will just be the very base introduction to the idea. But basically what we're doing is we're trying to take the steps and tasks that we all do and catalog them and say, where's the priority? Where's the authority? What's the, what's the focus? Because you seminary students know there's a lot of stuff you have to learn. Where does it all fit in? In the morning, you're learning about textual criticism and are we majority text people or eclecticists or whatever. In the afternoon, you're trying to reason through um, uh, the, the meaning or the, the, uh, the, the message of the book of Deuteronomy. And there's just so many things, so many inputs. How do you catalog it all and come up? And why do we all have the same conclusions? Well, you can actually probably organize some of this material um, the way I'm going to propose to do it here. Um, first of all, I think we're going to all agree that the body of authoritative truth for building a Christian systematic theology is the Bible. Everybody with me on that? Our theology comes from the Bible. That's a very Darbyite thing to do. But wait, shouldn't we talk about the creeds and how they... No. The creeds are, are, are inferences and conclusions that will derive from the Bible. But the source material, the authoritative body of truth is the Bible... When we differ with that, when we start to add conclusions from the Bible and say that's on par with the Bible, look out. That's where we undo the Reformation. That's where we don't quite get uh, all the way back to the Bible because God is speaking. In other words, my conclusions from what God says are not what God said. And, and knowing that is, is a really helpful uh, and freeing thing. Second, we would all agree that our theological statements are not on par with the authority of the scriptures. My prayer is that you're there. That's where you live. That's why you're at the Chafer Conference. Because, um, because the scriptures are the inspired word of God. And they're in, <clears throat> they're in written form and identifiable in terms of their propositions. Yet, we would also agree that the Bible speaks consistently within itself. Don't we like that? The Bible doesn't contradict itself. It's consistent within its own. There is a system the Bible would insist upon, that God would insist exists within the statements of Scripture, but that it speaks to everything. 
this part of this conference is answering the, the yak yak out there. Well, the Bible isn't a science book. You know, you can't make Genesis walk on all fours in science. Now the Bible speaks to every aspect of life because it's telling us the basis for all reality in the beginning in the beginning, God, who's there without any prior cause, created. So, see, it, it's talking to everything. And if you find something the Bible doesn't address, we're probably uh, holding our eyes closed to what the Scriptures would say to it. We don't want the Bible to talk to it. But we agree, the Bible addresses all of life. So it's got its own system, but it's also speaking to all of life. And so, I think these are all axioms that we would agree to. They, they render a view of systematic theology not as a body of truth that, you know, and Chafer's six volumes plus the summarization plus the, the index. Chafer's eight-volume theology, that's the body of truth. It's not the body of truth. It's, it's a work that is a helpful reading from the body of truth. And so systematic theology isn't a body of truth that you hold on par with the scriptures. It's a task. It's an ongoing process where the living word of God is informing what we think about it and all of life. And I think this reinforces what we all, what I always say. We're all theologians. We're all ones to know God and we're to become greater and greater knowers of God as his spirit equips us through the word. So theology becomes an ongoing process, a task, and not a creed. And that's hard for a lot of us to think through. Is that what we mean by theology? That it's, it's knowing God according to his word and it's self-consistency and self... Um, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? And it's... Uh, um, non-contradiction, but also as it addresses all aspects of life. Um, th- this means that if these things are true then I really need to be careful about saying, read the doctrinal statement before read the Bible. Now, the doctrinal statement's helpful, and I, I don't, don't misunderstand. I'm not dispensing with the value of systematic theology. I think what I'm trying to do is say, when you read Schaefer, for example, and you read something, you're like, I don't think that's how it works. Don't sweat it. His theology, his understanding, you're probably concerned because there's a biblical statement that you're you're saying this doesn't quite go, and he was close, but I think this Bible thing, and then and you've let the Bible go in and, and make that adjustment. And see, so that's an ongoing process. So do I endorse everything Chafer said? No. Do I say it's a fantastic systematic theology? Yes. Would I say read uh, read Millard Erickson? Yeah. Yeah, he's got helpful things, very helpful. Would I say um, read... Uh, Hodge, Charles Hodge, Systematic Theology. Well, if you read Schaefer, you are. He cut and paste like six pages of, of election in there from Hodge back before they were cutting and pasting. He referenced it and did a long quote, you know. And so the, the theology, why is it useful? Because it's helping me. It's helping me with the task that I know God and uh, according to the word. So if we look at Systematic Theology as a task, and I got this obviously from Michael Stallard, he, he proposes there, there are these there are five levels of doing theology. I think it's very helpful. And just see what you think. The levels approach to the task of systematic theology is a way of arranging your thoughts in terms of two things, authority and priority. And those two go together, right? If it's God's word, then I need to listen to that before I listen to the word of Dave. You know, the word of God is always better than the word of Dave, thus saith Dave. <laughs> right? Now, I just made a theological statement you can't find in the Bible, but it definitely accords with what the Bible says. See what I mean? These go together. All right. 
Um, level one, as Staller calls it, is biblical theology, and he means the whole process of exegesis in a local passage, all the way up to what's today called biblical theology. Do y'all know what scholars mean out there in the world of theological studies by biblical theology? I think we say that, and we're like, I know what it means, the theology of the Bible, and we don't know what it means. What's biblical theology? It is the local reading in light of the same author or the same time period. What does Paul say about the topic? That's biblical theology. What is what? It, if I get something, if I, if I get jammed up in Galatians, every commentator goes straight over to Romans. Romans is clear. I read that one into it. That might be a little bit too simplified because that's really not exegesis, but that's biblical theology. What does Paul think about whatever doctrine? That's that's the idea of a biblical theology, and uh, and so we're not starting with Paul and then going back to Genesis yet, not at the level of biblical theology. Paul derives out of Genesis, but Paul speaking in his own context. So that's the idea of a, a biblical theology. You would do a biblical theology of the Pentateuch. What's what's the Pentateuch? What what, what topics are addressed and how are they they developed? And you'd get a little early categorization within that local context. How many letters or how many writings, books do we have from the Apostle John? Can you do a Johannine theology in the Bible? How many books do we have from John? Four plus one. You got first, second, third John. We've got the big three. You've got the gospel and the book of Revelation, the apocalypse. That's you got Johannine theology in, in that local context. What does that help me do? That helps me with take care with my local reading. You know, this paper is a, it's a challenge because we're doing history. We're doing theological method and theory. We want to do the Bible. Well, that's what Andy's paper was on Wednesday. You know, the day I was here for a couple minutes. Uh, Andy's paper was a, a, a great look at a theological method because he's saying, look at the initial context where this word is used before you go outside the passage. But when the passage tells you to go back to Kadesh Barnea, Numbers 14, you do it because that's what the passage is doing. And so um, he had both biblical and whole Bible integration. Level three, or sorry, level two, would be what we call, uh, what you might call a whole Bible integration. That's where you're connecting what's going on with Genesis to what's going on with Romans. See, that's where the whole Bible is speaking as its own system. Now, most of us think that's what systematic theology is. The Bible's categories expressed. But you can't find a single systematic theology that just does that. Why? Because um, theology actually addresses all inputs. Theology speaks to everything, not just to the biblical categories. Those biblical categories then become a, a filter which addresses all of life. Level three is where, this is where we mean by systematic theology sometimes, the categories. Schaefer developed his theology. He's got theology proper, prolegomena theology proper, uh, um, soteriology, you know, the, the different categories, how you develop it as, as a consequence of whole Bible integration. And what I hope I'm doing is talking to your understanding. This is how we do theology. We go from exegesis to our categories. How do we get there? Through the local context. And dot, we don't do damage to what Paul is saying because we've got a, a doctrine called verbal plenary inspir, inspiration. And the, and the Spirit is working through the Apostle Paul, but he is working through the Apostle Paul. And so, so um, you get to this categoric categorization or systematization, and if you don't include the next step in your theology, then your theology can't really 
um, do what it's designed to do. This is where it gets really exciting. Level four is interaction or validation for validation or invalidation of extra biblical truth claims. This is where all takers take your whack. Send it down the pipe. My theology is waiting as the filter, and the word of God is going to speak to your rationalism, your empiricism, your evolution. A lot of what we've done here has been theological, but it's been soft rock geology. That's an input to this filter where the Bible gives a rendering. And so we get our, but we've got our biblical thing first. See why it's built, it's leveled up. You start with the Bible, but you let, once you've got your categories, you let them interact. Now, notice it doesn't say integration. It says validation or invalidation. This is the filter level where the Bible actually speaks by its categories to the topic. Now, the reason we're taking such care to make these levels is because you don't want to just read one verse and say, well, I think I know what that means, and then go take it to war against the unbelief out there. That's a framework violation. (laughs) The amoeba is going to get you because it's not united to the whole system. And so what I'm learning from theological method is something we're already doing here with our whole Bible integration in the framework. It's very exciting to me to, uh, to see this kind of validation of a systematic approach. The, the fifth level where I'm not, um, I'm not really receiving inputs here, I'm just rendering judgments, is the level of application. The Bible categories are speaking to whatever the topics. And uh, you could call this the judgment phase or where we answer the question. You could look at it like a like an archery target in my writing. I kind of talk about that a little bit. And the first level is exegesis. It's the most important thing. It's what we spend most of our pulpit time doing, and that's why it's the center. It's the most authoritative. But the exegesis is happening in a context of biblical theology. If I come up with a conclusion, and see, these are it's not necessarily sequential, right, because you've got a, a, a cyclical process. I understand something from Paul in Galatians 3, and then I read more of Paul, and I say, well, that seems to differ with Galatians 3. I've got to do some work. Now we need to, to sort through what's Paul doing on this topic in general and work on that a little bit. And so that's why biblical theology helps with your exegesis. It doesn't tell it what to do. It's a process where you uh, basically rely upon the doctrine of non-contradiction. Whole Bible integration, where we love to live on the whole doctrine, you know, the whole thing is uh, is where dispensationalism comes from. I'll show you uh, the doctrine of the pre-trib rapture came about because of this. In fact, I need to go ahead and say that now because we're about out of time. The pre-trib rapture came about because Darby is already convinced and certain of his position in Christ as church. He's laid up. He was in a horse riding accident, 26 years old. Horse threw him against a post. And he convalesced for a long time after having to have surgery. 1826 osteopathic surgery. No thank you. (laughs) He got thrown against a post and he was convalesced for a long time. And he couldn't go out and he couldn't go preach like he'd been doing. A very vigorous communicator. So I had to read his Bible in bed. He's reading Isaiah 32. Heavily dispensational passage. Isaiah 32. And that's how he concluded the pre-trib rapture. He read Isaiah 32. I'm not going to take the time. I would have. Isaiah 32 does not mention the pre-tribulation rapture. It mentions a future glory for a kingdom in Israel. It mentions a future earthly glory for a kingdom in Israel. And he had his doctrine of the church 
and his position in Christ so well ensconced in his thinking that integrating that New Testament doctrine with his Old Testament insistence that what God is saying must happen as stated, not spiritually in his heart now, but in the future for Israel, he must remove the church to be with him before he brings this earthly glory because we're the heavenly people in Christ. That's the see that's the theological integration thing that's happening for and see Isaiah 32 doesn't talk about the rapture but that's the the way his mind uh, arrived at the concept. Extra biblical interaction is where you let it talk to whatever and boy isn't it great to teach children to do this. We send them out there where the world is firing extra biblical content in them constantly. Wouldn't it be nice if they were equipped to to step up to bat as David Noble says? Set them up to bat, and you're pitching Rorty and all these unbelievers at them. Pitching naturalism, pitching evolutionism, pitching humanism. Wouldn't it be nice if they were able to swing and and knock one out of the park instead of just striking out all the time? And that's, see, a good theology does that. It, it, It answers it. And then, of course, application. And that's why I say this ties in with the Bible study methods. But what I'm, what I'm also trying to say is this is our approach. This is how we tend to do it without even thinking about it. Sometimes it's helpful to, uh, to see this is what we're doing. Okay, <laughs> that's, that's helpful. Read this with me. Deeply convinced of the divine inspiration of the scriptures given to us of God and confirmed in this conviction by daily and growing discoveries of their fullness, depth, and perfectness, ever more sensible through grace of the admirable perfection of the parts and the wonderful connection of the whole, the writer only hopes to help the reader in the study of them. (gasps) You can tell this guy studied Ephesians chapter 1, you know? This is uh, in the most important theological writing he probably did in the introduction to the synopsis. Uh, I'm actually into doing some Darby exegesis with you just for a second, if you'll bear with me. Deeply convinced of the divine inspiration of the scriptures given to us of God. is going to be this adjunct of his main clause, but let's just let that one sit where it is. He's telling you his summary statement. We've got an inspired scriptures. Now, see, if I hadn't done this, I wouldn't be able to, to, to give the, the clarity I have on Darby. But in doing it, it's, it really unlocks things. You've got to slow down sometimes. Deeply convinced of the divine inspiration of the scriptures given to us of God and confirmed in this conviction by daily and growing discoveries of their fullness, death, and perfectness. What is that saying? That he's got experience in working in the word. And it confirms this conviction he already has of their inspiration. Did you get that when we read through it real quick? See, being a PhD student, you're supposed to read, you know, 800 pages a week. But I'm going to spend 80 minutes on half a page if I'm going to really grasp, well, maybe not 80 minutes, but a, num- a, a few minutes on this to really dig out what he's saying. Now, I don't read everything like this. The, the quote I gave you earlier, I wouldn't devote this time, but this is his summary of how he views the Bible. And I, I found it very helpful. So he's got his summary statement of the inspiration and his hands-on experience with it. And then he says, ever more sensible through grace, through grace, that's the grace of God, of the admirable perfection of the parts and the wonderful connection of the whole. That's the, the doctrine of illumination. God's grace gives him that sensitivity. Is, that's his view. He's, a, he's very uh, insistent that the Spirit of God works the Word in you. Really big on illumination. Probably too far, in my opinion, to the point of a soft mysticism. It's in Darby. You've got it. You've, you'll find it. You'll just know if the Spirit will opens your heart to it. 
would be how he would do things a lot of times. And not to take away the Spirit's work in the Word, but his sometimes perhaps illumination was uh, was too much of a validation for him. Then you get the main clause, the writer only helps, ho- hopes to help the reader in the study of them. <laughs> this is the, the diagram of the main clause of the sentence. It's real complicated. The writer hopes, he only hopes, to help the reader in the study of the Scriptures. See, when you're reading for the main idea... Sometimes you have to skip all the adjuncts. But if you skip the adjuncts, you miss the theology that Darby's actually saying. Who cares what you're trying to do, Darby? What do you think about the Bible? That's really the more important part. Actually, it is important that his view of the synopsis, the closest we get to a theology of his, is I'm helping you get to the body of truth. See, he thinks theology is a task. I want to help you in the reading of the scriptures. And he'll say that again and again. You can't really get much out of my synopsis unless you read the Bible. By the way, Chafer in his systematic theology work, uh, Schofield in his Schofield reference Bible both said Darby were indispensable. The synopsis, that was the one thing from Darby that was so very helpful in their preparation of those those, uh, documents. So the writer hopes to help the reader in the study of the scriptures. What, What do those adjuncts give us? Divine inspiration given to us of God, that's the same thing. The fullness of the scriptures, the depth of the scriptures, those are two different issues. Their perfectness, they're sufficient, they're complete. Bible's enough. See, in that statement, I'm not reading in. That's what he means. The admirable perfection of the parts and the wonderful connection of the whole. That's almost what Hirsch said about hermeneutics in the 60s that were that Elliot Johnson wrote about in his book Expository Hermeneutics the parts fit with the whole and you you don't really get it until you look at the whole in light of the parts and and that's that's just good hermeneutical practice today in dispensationalism Darby said it and uh, insisted on it in his summary discussion let me give you um we're going to skip that one Darby's trinitarian st- statement of um of biblical continuity. It's a great statement, but we don't have time. Uh, this is a helpful thought in terms of system of methodologies, theological method that um, Millard Erickson talks about in his, in his book, Christian theology. Um, a lot of things you like what Erickson comes up with. A lot of things you won't like, but, uh, but this is in terms of method. He talks about the central interpretive motif. Who's ever heard of a central interpretive motif? Of course you haven't. But in, in terms of theological method, this is a big talk, big topic. Take any theologian and try to say, what's the doctrinal category that best helps me integrate what he taught? What's his, his emphasis, his contribution? What was the most important categorical doctrine that, that really defined? And that's, that's a helpful thought when you're trying to assess a theologian. Yesterday you heard from Bruce Baker. He did a really helpful theology paper on this, on theological method in the journal Minister of Theology a few years ago on Chafer. He did Chafer's one. I did Darby. Um, my, his made the journal. And um, <laughs> the, the, the idea of a central interpretive motif is it, it's what Millard Erickson means by um, that there's a category that gives you an ability to interpret the, the system of the, of the theologian. Now, that's problematic for us because we like the word interpret, interpretation as the meaning of a text. We're doing literal hermeneutics, so we wouldn't call it interpretive. <coughs> Who cares if you can interpret my theology? We want to talk about the interpretation of the scriptures. So I think it would be better to call it a central, integ- central integrative motif 
the doctrinal category that helps me understand why did he write about this? Why is he talking about this? What gave and figuring that out with Darby was uh, actually fairly easy. The core thing that Darby's worried about didn't make it on my slide. It is the rapture of the church. I'm sorry. It is the the church of the Lord Jesus Christ as distinct from Israel. That's the central thing that he's fighting for in all his teaching and all his travels and all his writing. He is insistent that the church is distinct, that the church is special. The church is, as Chafer would say, an intercalation. And understanding that about Darby will help you when you have to read his local church stuff and hold your nose. Hearing his argument for infant baptism, it's just, where'd you get that? He would reject the pastoral epistles, what they taught about the function of the local church, in favor of Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered in my name. And in my opinion, end up with something very reminiscent of a Quaker approach to the conduct of the local church. That's, that's pejorative, but it seems a lot of similar projects. If you feel like saying something, get up and say something. And um, so uh, Darby's a helpful guy, and I really appreciate the time with you today to think through some of these categories. This is just a very uh, brief introduction. Um, it's like the trying to bail water when it's coming in way too fast. We've got a coffee cup to bail it. Hopefully I've been able to isolate some of the key issues um, that are throughout his system, and you'd be able to, to have some access to reading. Are there any questions about Darby and theological method? All right, David. I got a question. Excellent. Just tie this together in terms of what comes out of Darby and the idea of the earth, I mean, the, the, the church as a heavenly people and the Israel as an earthly people. Yeah, that's a very challenging thing that Elmore takes on. The earthly people is the church, is, the, is Israel, and the heavenly people is the church. And the reason that's hard is because we're no longer talking about what's going on in the Bible. We're talking about eschatology, what happens after the Bible addresses, but it's future. Um, who are the earthly people that inherit the land? Uh, they're the they're the trib saints that walk into the millennium and are unresurrected. What do you do with Israel that has been dead and standing to be resurrected? And where do they fit into the scheme of Israel? And that's a really interesting question that we don't tend to ask, but it plays into to the discussion. Where Darby is on that, I think Elmore would say. I'm not sure. What, uh, I think Darby would say that we're looking for a literal non-resurrected Israel after the tribulation that goes into the millennium. And for sure, the church, which is not Old Testament Israel that are waiting for their resurrection, we are resurrected ruling with Christ. Um, and what you do with uh, Old Testament saints, uh, it seems like they have to, I think Darby would say they have to be in the land because they were promised the land. And so it, it would be in a resurrected state. But, uh, but that gives you a really strange picture. You've got trib saints that are not resurrected. You've got church saints that are resurrected. You've got Old Testament saints that if Abraham gets the land, he's resurrected. Um, and Darby would, and Darby would say uh, that those are different entities, at least the church in Israel. Right. Right. Now, the next question that needs to be addressed in a future paper is going to be, <laughs> be the relationship of the church as a heavenly people and Israel as a as an earthly people and how that impacts the distinction between classic form or formative dispensationalism 
and progressive dispensationalism. Absolutely. Elmore, Elmore claimed, Elmore's a progressive dispensationalist. I gave you his, paper, his dissertation. He claims Darby is, is on his side of this, I believe. And so that's, that's problematic. Uh, but this is a question. If you look at things to come, Pentecostal. Yeah, because when I had when I had uh, uh, bla- uh, blazing for dispensationalism and blazing and Bach and Soce are the three architects of progressive. Right. What they were arguing is that that this is wrong in Darby. That eventually the two peoples of God become right. one in the eternal state. Right. Well, well, and that's Darby would absolutely insist no, absolutely not, and he would also which would uh, mean he's not on Elmore's side. About that, that's right. And Elmore, but Elmore helpfully can conclu- see the hard the hard thing with Darby is if we're in the heavenly uh, with Christ and Jesus is ruling on earth, then uh, we're with Christ on earth in the millennium. And so that's been a, a question in dispensational circles. Uh, Elmore concludes that Darby just doesn't get into geography very much. But there is, you have to hold a distinction between the two peoples, as, as I think the broad brush summary definitely. Yeah, yeah. And, this be, and, it, and it becomes important down the, down the long ride, line in terms of understanding those, those distinctions. And where this beca- comes back is understanding where different theologians and people are today. Uh, for example, when we, were, when we were at lunch today, we were talking, and, and I made a comment about New Testament th- theological shifts and complementary hermeneutics, because I think it was Steve Austin asked me the question to define progressive dispensationalism. I brought up Daryl Bach's name, and immediately Bill Katz, who did, who was with Chosen People, goes, well, well there's something wrong with Daryl Bach, because he, uh, he publishes all of Chosen People ministry stuff. He's involved very heavily with them. So these kinds of things impact, and, and it's like tendrils that go through evangelicalism, and we have to know who the players are. And it's not just a few people on like a baseball program where you know who the 30 people are on the team. You've got about you know, 300 or 400, and it filters down to the church even if you, in, in the pew, even if you don't know it. So we have to be knowledgeable and, and uh, understand some of these things. So I really appreciate what you did, David. Uh, so other questions? Oh, good. I thought Robbie was going to have the only question. I was really stressing that. Since uh, he has a strong distinction between Israel and the church, and rightly so, what would uh, Darby say about the new covenant, which is uh, for Israel for sure? Right. But however... The New Testament also speaks of the new covenant sure. for the church, right. apparently. I just happen Is to there have, one or two new covenants? That's a great question. And I just happen to have recently come from a class that answered that question. <laughs> the new covenant is a big deal in dispensationalism right now. There are just recently two books put out on this. The Council on Dispensational Hermeneutics up in Clark Summit Baptist Bible Seminary. Uh, did a big uh, seminar on this four or five years ago on the different views within dispensationalism of the New Covenant. That was my first taste of scholarship with dispensationalists. I went to Dallas, but I didn't really, you know, dispensationalists. Um, first time I really studied with them. Man, there's a lot. There are a lot of views on the New Covenant. It's a. It's a. There are several different perspectives, and um, uh, the Chafer view of the two New Covenants, 
new covenant to Israel and new covenant to the church is a, a sort of an anomaly um, in that it, we can't find it anywhere else. That would have been a Chafer original. And he convinced Walver to, to write it and to say it. And then after he went home, Walver went back to not believing in two new covenants. Um, and uh, I heard new, two new covenants all growing up because you've got the Old Testament in Jeremiah 31, uh, the new covenant, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Judah and the house of Israel. And, and, but then in the new covenant in second Corinthians were ministers of the new covenant. So, so what do you do with it? And, um, the, um, I'd say the most popular view among dispensational scholarship today, first of all, which is trying to go through and learn from Darby. Everything wasn't said by, by Ryrie. Okay. Ryrie was helpful, but, and Pentecost is helpful, but go read Darby, you know, and there's a lot to read. Um, I think what most people are saying today, and I think what Darby would have said, is that the new covenant uh, is a is a is a, a covenant, a contract, an eternal promise and binding contract with specified behaviors between God and Israel, okay, uh, forever. Um, and it's a grant covenant, the kind that God gives, and there's no requirements on Israel's part. He's just going to do this. And the reason it mentions this in the New Testament is because the believer who is in Christ has benefits that come because of our relationship to Christ who between Israel and God there's a there's a connection with Christ in the new covenant so so the the now some people are really angry about this they'll say no the church has absolutely nothing to do with the new covenant but you I I I am most dispensationalists will probably say that's hard to get out of um out of the new testament uh, Roy Beecham, the church has no relationship to the new covenant. I don't think we're parties to it. I think Darby taught we're not parties to it, but we're ministers of it because we're united to Christ. So that's how we relate to it. <clears throat> and um, see, the, the, the problem is uh, it relates to the kingdom, the relationship of the Christian or the church to the kingdom. That's an important question because it's a Jewish kingdom. It's God's promise to Israel. And that's tied up with the new covenant. And what's what's the what gives? What's the deal with us in the kingdom? What well, we're called out to rule in a kingdom that is not yet. It's not already. It's 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 not yet. It's coming. And when he comes with his Jewish kingdom to establish the church, the bride of Christ rules with Christ. So I don't see why, if we understand kingdom that way, we we would struggle with new covenant that way. Um, but that it sort of fits together. I think Stallard. Stallard would say Darby holds to that view. Uh, others would try to claim him for the no relationship view. But there, but nobody ever said two new covenants that I know of before Chafer. Um, Walter and Ryan both held to that temporarily in the 50s. Any other questions? Great day. Well, thank you. That was great, David. Thank you, thank you. Excellent job. We appreciate it. Well, I got to keep my distance. All right, we'll get whatever you have. Yes. All right, let me close in prayer. We'll have a, a break until our evening session tonight at 7:30, and uh, then we'll all meet back here uh, one more time. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for. Uh, David's uh, diligent, hard work and the tremendous job that he did. Uh, Father, pray that he would continue to recover from this illness, be able to travel home safely. Father, we pray for each of us so we can uh, sort of rest and uh, reboot during this uh, three-hour break and prepare for 
our last time together this evening. Thank you for the privilege of being able to get minister for you and to be together at this conference. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.